Well, let me pray for us this morning. And Lord, we, as we talk about prayer, this privilege that you have provided for us, Lord, many of us struggle in this area. Lord, we know we should pray more. We know it's a privilege that has been purchased for us. Sometimes we find that the desire to pray is not there, like we feel that it should be. Sometimes some of us struggle with what to say in prayer. Uh, Some of us have thoughts about praying that maybe aren't quite in alignment with your thoughts. And so, Lord, this morning, would you once again, through the teaching ministry of your Holy Spirit, open our eyes, teach us. May our hearts be in such condition that we're willing to receive from you. And Lord, will you stoke the fires of passion in our hearts for you and the desire to be with you. And so we offer that prayer in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, as I said last weekend, we began this series that we've titled Draw Near. Draw Near to God. And we saw that under the new covenant that we live in, the Lord actually invites his people to draw near to him, to approach him, to come close. And that's a great privilege, isn't it? To pray to God. Hebrews 4.16 reads this way, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we, we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. How many of you have ever had that experience of needing grace to help you in your time of need? Yeah, probably all of us. Hebrews 10.22 says, Let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. And we saw where that verbiage comes from of sprinkling. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you, is how the invitation reads in James chapter 4 and has that wonderful promise attached to it. He will draw near to you. We also discovered just how it came about that this access to God was opened up for us. I was at a social event this week, not the giant eagle one, another one, and a guy came up to me and he said, hey, I want to thank you for the message that you gave this past weekend. I never really, it never really occurred to me that my ability to pray to God was connected to Jesus' death on the cross for me. And in my spirit, I was shouting and saying, yes, he got it, he got it. That's, that's what it's all about. So much was purchased for us when Christ spilled his blood out on Calvary. And we saw that there in that moment of intense agony, we learned from Matthew 27, 51, that just a few hundred yards away from where Christ was being crucified, over in the temple, something very strange happened. The thick veil that hung there separating the holy place from the most holy place, that veil was torn from top to bottom, signifying, one, that God did it, top to bottom, and also signifying that access was now open to God's people in this new covenant era. What a great, great thing. Jesus' own separation from the Father opened up our access to the Father. And so because of that blood sacrifice, God's people of faith can now enjoy the purchased privilege of drawing near. And doing so with boldness and confidence and without shame. Praise God. Have you drawn near at all this week? Have you come to God in prayer? It's a great privilege. Now I want to say this. As glorious as that new covenant privilege is, 
we need to know that the scriptures also contain a caution with regard to our drawing near to God, a warning as such. What I mean by that is that the Bible makes it clear that there is a kind of drawing near that does not please God, that in fact offends Him. And I want to know what that is, don't you? We see it in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Listen to the word of the Lord recorded in Isaiah 29, 13. And the Lord said, This people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. Jesus himself reiterated this in the New Testament in Mark chapter 7 when he said, talking to a group of religious people, he said, You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. So there is a kind of drawing near that our Lord calls vain, empty, and hypocritical, and he takes no pleasure in it. It happens when God's people draw near to him in prayer and their lips speak words that sound right, that appear to honor God, but the truth about them is that their heart just isn't in it. Their heart's not there. There's an attempt to do the religious duty of prayer, but it is lifeless and passionless because the words are not animated by and flowing from a heart that is stoked with affection for God. This is called duty without delight. Duty without delight. And that, God says, amounts to empty praying and vain worship. And so today I want us to get closer to the heart of prayer, the core, the essence of what prayer really is. Real, scriptural, God-pleasing prayer. Prayer that's not empty, not vain, not hypocritical, but, but genuine, the real, the real deal. So here's the question. At its heart, what is prayer? I think we're going to see it more clearly as we dive into my favorite psalm today, Psalm 63. And if you have your Bible, turn to Psalm 63. And because I memorized it back in the day in the King James Version... Many years ago, that's the version I'm using for the sermon today. Well, many of you have read Psalms. As you know, the Psalms contain the transcripts of many of the prayers of David, that shepherd boy turned giant slayer, turned warrior king. David lived back around 1000 BC, so about 3000 years ago. I've read the Psalms many times throughout the years. And to me, reading the Psalms is kind of like getting a glimpse or a peek into David's diary. Isn't that kind of what it's like? His spiritual journal. Because what I find there is very, it's, it's the raw, unedited, unfiltered version of David's prayers at different points in his life. And so, so through reading them, we discover what was really in this man's heart. Now, I was taught as part of the preaching process that whenever... I preach, I should take a moment and try to put the entire sermon in a single sentence, just for clarity's sake. And so here is the sermon in a sentence for today. At its core, prayer is an outlet for the passion and praise that flow out of a worshipful heart. At its core, at its essence, prayer is the outlet for the passion and praise that flow from a worshipful heart. Now we know that prayer is a lot of things. 
Prayer is thanking God, isn't it? Prayer is presenting our needs to God. Prayer is asking God for things. It's lamenting our sin. It's praying for others, interceding for others like we just did a few moments ago. But I believe that at its core, prayer is an outlet for expressing to the Lord what is in our hearts, whatever we find in our hearts. Let's see what was in David's heart when he penned Psalm 63. Notice first there's a little prescript there. It says, a Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. And so when in David's life, some of you have studied the life of David, when in his life was he in the wilderness? And maybe our minds go first to when he was on the run as a fugitive being chased by King Saul. Remember that? King Saul, that obsessive, compulsive king of Israel who flew into a jealous rage when he discovered that this young shepherd boy, David, had been anointed as a future king in Israel. Maybe that season of hiding out in the wilderness was when David wrote this psalm, maybe. But many scholars believe it was actually much later in David's life because in verse 11, he refers to himself as the king. So then we need to ask, well, when did King David ever find himself out wandering in the wilderness? Do you know? 2 Samuel 15.23 tells us when. It was when his own son, Absalom, was leading a rebellion, a revolt against him, having stolen away from David the affections of the people and gaining a following. And now Absalom was seeking to take down his own dad. Tell you what, that's a wilderness season, isn't it? When your own child turns against you. And so David now, on the run, driven from his palace home, wandering around, just trying to stay alive, David finds himself in the wilderness. And what was he doing out in the wilderness? I'll tell you one thing he was doing. He was drawing near to God. You ever been in the wilderness? That's a time to draw near to God. And that's what David was doing. Listen to his prayer, Psalm 63, beginning in verse 1. O God... You see, this is not a God prayer. This is an oh God prayer. Oh God, thou art my God. Early will I seek thee. My soul thirsteth for thee. My flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. What's he saying? God, I miss you. (laughs) I miss you so much. It feels like you're far away. You're distant from me right now. Out here in this barren wilderness this dry desert, God, I want you, I need you. Just like my tongue is parched with thirst and craves a drink of water, so my soul, he writes, is parched with thirst for you, God. Everything in me longs to take a refreshing drink from the fountain of you. I miss you, God. That's what he's saying. So this is pretty raw stuff, isn't it? This is deep heart stuff. Verse 2, to see, here's what he misses, to see thy power and thy glory, so as I have seen thee in the sanctuary. So God, I long to see your glory again, like back in the days when I would go with your people to the house of worship to worship you. I miss that, God. I miss seeing your glory. I've been caught up in your glorious presence and filled to the brim with joy as I've worshipped with your people. I long for that again, O God. And then verse 3, because thy loving kindness is better than life. You might want to circle that little phrase, better than life. My lips shall praise thee. 
Thus will I bless thee while I live. I will lift up my hands in thy name. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness. My mouth shall praise thee with joyful lips when I remember thee upon my bed and meditate on thee in the night watches. Because thou hast been my help, therefore in the shadow of thy wings will I rejoice. My soul followeth hard after thee. Thy right hand upholdeth me. What's happening here? What's happening is that David, this fugitive king, is praying and he's pouring out his heart to God, isn't he? And what's in his heart is passion for God, thirst for God, praise for God, affection for God, desire for God. You see, at its core, prayer is an outlet for the passion and praise that flow out of a worshipful heart. That's what it is at its core. And notice that also in his heart is a deep and settled confidence in God's ability to protect him. Listen, verse 9. But those that seek my soul to destroy it shall go into the lower parts of the earth. They shall fall by the sword. They shall be a portion for foxes. And that happened. But the king shall rejoice in God. And everyone that sweareth by him shall glory or, or boast is the word. But the mouth of them that speak lies shall be stopped. Well, as I've read back through this and molded over in my mind this past week especially, I, I want us to ponder two realities that we see in this psalm, two truths about the nature of David's relationship with God that get revealed in this prayer and I think can help us understand the essence of prayer. The first thing that came leaping off the page to me as I read back through this is, number one, that God was everything to David. God was everything to David. Oh God, you are my God. God was his treasured possession. My God. Personal, my God. I wonder, has that ever happened to you yet? Has the God become your God yet? Has the God of creation, the almighty of the universe, become your God, the God of me? Has it gotten personal yet for you? It sure had for David. You know, your car can break down, your big screen TV can get stolen, your 401k can dissolve in a recession economy, your house can burn down, your children can even turn on you, but there's one thing that can never be taken away from you if you truly possess it, and that is your most treasured possession, your relationship with God. No one can take that away from you. Oh God, you are my God. That relationship with God that was secured for us by Jesus Christ on the cross. It was David's most treasured possession. His words drip with that reality in this psalm. God was his treasured possession. He was also his intense passion. He says, oh God, thou art my God, early will I seek thee. And he might be talking about early as in early in the morning. But it's probably better translated, earnestly will I seek thee. Earnestly, intensely, passionately. David's saying that his intense desire was for God. Not really even God's gifts, because he was devoid of a lot of those gifts in that moment, but just God. You know, that's one of the values of a season in the wilderness, by the way. 
When everything that you once desired and clung to and thought was so important to you gets stripped away and you start to realize, I didn't really need all that stuff anyway. All I really need is God. That's what happens in the wilderness. God was also David's deep yearning. As he penned the words, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh, oh, this is interesting, my flesh, my body longs for you, God. What he was saying is I'm realizing out here in this desert, this dry, parched desert, that all of my cravings, all of my yearnings, all of my longings are really for you, God. I must have you. You ever prayed that prayer? I've prayed that prayer hundreds of times these last few years. God, I've got to have you. I've got to have you. If I don't have you, I'm dead in the water. I'm desperate for you, God. My soul craves to be satisfied by you. Even my body yearns to be close to you, he wrote. Have you ever needed a hug from God? An embrace from the Almighty God? That's what he's talking about. My body needs you. My whole being I think David realized out in the wilderness that every thirst, every hunger pang, every appetite he he had would ultimately be satisfied only in God. God was everything to David. His treasured possession, his intense passion, his deep yearning. God was also his superior joy. Now this is good. Because thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise thee. Better than life. Better. That's a word of comparative ranking, isn't it? Something's better. I like this restaurant better than this restaurant. Or this sports team better than this sports team. It's a, it's a word of comparative ranking. And David is saying, God, your faithful covenant love to me is better than anything in this life. It's better than life itself. It's better than anything in this life. Now that's worship. That's worship. When you make that kind of assessment about what is most treasured, most valuable to you, and you say, God, what, what, my delight in you is better than anything in this life. You're worshiping God in that moment. You're revealing by those kinds of prayers his value, his worth, his worthiness. Did you know that God wants to be seen as superior to every other pleasure? Did you know that God wants to be seen as better than any other joy? This is why Jesus said, you've got to choose. Do you want to serve money or do you want to serve God? You've got to make a choice. Which is the superior source of pleasure and delight to your soul? This is why hundreds of years later, Paul would write, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. It is better by far to depart and be with Christ. It's better there with him than anything this world offers. Thy loving kindness is better than life. This is why it is so repugnant to God when people talk as if Jesus was just another accessory that they'd like to add to their life to improve things a bit. Now I'm all set now. I got my iPod and my iPad and my gym membership and my personal coach. And I got Jesus to help me on my way to success. That is the opposite of true worship. And it's repulsive to God. God doesn't want to be just on an equal plane with everything else in your life. 
He wants to be superior because he is superior. Listen, Jesus is not a means to some other end. He is the end. Jesus is not a stepping stone to use to get what we want. He is what we want. Jesus does not want to be part of our lives. He wants to be our life. By the way, that's what a disciple of Jesus is. Someone who is increasingly treasuring Jesus and his gospel above everything else. More valuable than possessions, position, success, ease, money, fame. David had seen the glory of God, he says, and it made everything else pale in comparison. I must have that, God. He deemed being happy in God to be superior to all of the other pleasures and joys in his life. And so that's why he wrote, My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise thee with joyful lips. He was saying, God, you're my satisfying delight. And so now in his mind, he's going somewhere, isn't he, when he writes these words? In his mind, he's at a banquet table now, preparing for a meal. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness. What's on the menu? What's being served up in this meal? It's God. David's body was still out in the wilderness. His circumstances hadn't changed, but now in his imagination, he was seated at a great banquet table, feasting on sumptuous food. He is happily gorging himself on God. And his soul is full and satisfied. Feasting on God. God was everything to David. He was his soul's utter delight and satisfaction. And God was David's nighttime pondering as well. When I remember thee upon my bed and meditate on thee in the night watches. Now that's an interesting question to ask, isn't it? Where does your mind go? When the TV's off, when the kids are down in bed and it's quiet, all the other stimulation from your day is over. Where does your mind go? Where does, do your thoughts typically go? For David, all of his thoughts ran up the rails of God's grace to God himself. I meditate on you in the watches of the night at three in the morning when I'm lying awake at night. I'm thinking about God, captivated by God. God was his nighttime pondering. God was also his provider, his comforting provider. He said, because thou hast been my help, therefore in the shadow of thy wings I will rejoice. You see, David had a history with God. Maybe out in the wilderness he began to rehearse those things that had happened in his life. And he remembered how God had been his help back from his early days as a shepherd boy, finding God's strength to slay a lion, fight off a bear, later to kill Goliath, to win military battles. God had a track record with David of faithfulness. And David recalled that now to his mind. And in doing so, just thinking about that, a sense of contentment and confidence and safety and security comes over him even though at that very moment, bloodthirsty men were lying in wait to take his life. But it wasn't what was going on out here that really mattered to him. It was what was going on in his heart and in his mind. 
And then he writes this, My soul followeth hard after thee. We could say that God was his dogged pursuit. In fact, the word, the original Hebrew word for following hard after was used of a dog chasing a rabbit. Got that picture in your mind? Speaks of the act of pursuit, hot pursuit, chasing down. And I don't think that David was making a promise here. Okay, God, if you get me out of this mess, I will. No, I think he was just stating a fact. I'm chasing after you, God. I'm out here in the wilderness. My son is out to ruin me. My kingdom is in jeopardy. But what I really want you to know, God, in the deepest part of my being is that I must have you. You seem distant right now, Lord. You seem far away, but I've been remembering what it was like when you and I used to be close, when I was worshiping you and dancing and singing and beholding your glory in the sanctuary with your people. And I remember how satisfied and how secure I always felt when you were near. And so I'm coming after you, God. I've caught your scent now and I'm chasing you down. You can expect to hear from me every morning. And every afternoon and every night, my soul follows hard after you. By the way, that response glorifies God. Did you know that? When God hears words that come from our heart, out of our lips, that declare that he is worth chasing after, pursuing, that glorifies God. Whether he seems far or near, I love what John Piper says about this. He says, this psalm tells us two ways that God is glorified. When our hearts thirst and faint for God, when he seems far off and we express our longing for him, that glorifies him. And when he seems near and our heart is feasting on God and we are satisfied by his nearness, that glorifies God. He said, I think this also explains why the Lord at times does seem to pull away, to pull back to reveal to us what we are chasing after and how intense our desire for him really is. God was everything to David. He was also his faithful defender. Those that seek my soul to destroy it shall go into the lower parts of the earth, he wrote. And then he said, but the king shall rejoice in God. God was his joy and his boasting. God was everything to David. And as a result of who God was in David's life, we come to see in this psalm a second truth. Number two, David's prayer then was simply expressing the passion and praise that flowed from a worshipful heart. This is what prayer is at its core. Words flowing out of our lips that come from a heart that is worshipful. And I try to think, well, what's an image that we could get in our minds that would picture this kind, of, this kind of prayer that we're seeing in Psalm 63? And what came to my mind was a geyser. You ever seen a geyser? Anybody been out west and seen a geyser? You don't actually have to go out west. You can Google it on your little tablet and in your living room. Watch a geyser like I did last night. And it's, uh, it's an amazing thing. I, I think we could image it this way. Prayer is like a geyser in this way. You know how a geyser works. There's water in an underground reservoir somewhere and it begins to heat up. And why does it heat up? Because there's hot rocks down there. Heating it up, heating it up. And that water begins to 
reach boiling temperature deep beneath the surface of the earth. And it begins, as we know, to expand as water turns to steam. And and it creates a pressure that seeks an outlet for release. And the pressure eventually becomes so great that it erupts in what is called a steam explosion. And it forces that superheated water and steam up through fissures in the earth until it finally finds an opening, an outlet, a crack in the surface of the earth and it shoots out a column of water and steam, maybe a hundred feet into the air. It's a very cool scene. You ought to check it out sometime. And I got to thinking as I had that image in my mind, you know, this kind of prayer is like that, like that, guys, where it begins in a deep place in the heart that's being stoked and superheated by the, the Holy Spirit. And a kind of pressure is created, a kind of spiritual pressure that seeks an outlet for release, and eventually the words come streaming out of your mouth to God in prayer. Well, how does that heat begin to be generated deep in our souls? Well, David heated up his heart for God through his imaginations and his emotions, didn't he? He's out in the wilderness, okay, but he's recalling in his mind those glorious times of worship with God's people that had been so stimulating and so satisfying to him. He replayed those experiences in his imagination. He relived them. He felt them. He experienced them again. I think this is one thing that, that, well, I think it's one reason why God gave us imagination. I think it's, it's why it's a good thing to, for example, Replay the music that was playing, the soundtrack that was playing when you first gave your life to God, when you first fell in love with Jesus. Do you ever do that? You know, there's iTunes now, right? I mean, you can find 1974 stuff or 1986 stuff or 1999 stuff. I I was doing this just yesterday, listening to the music that was playing when I first surrendered my life to Jesus. And all those old emotions and passions and affections started to stir up in my heart again for Christ. That's what David did. I mean, he didn't use iTunes. But he brought to the forefront of his mind those times when he was worshiping God with God's people, beholding the glory of God in the place of worship. And as he did, those experiences stirred up a rumbling in his soul that created a pressure that clamored for release. And the words finally surged forward and erupted out of David's mouth and onto the papyrus or whatever it is they were written down on and they've rained down on people for thousands of years and on us today and so we see in this prayer in psalm 63 words and phrases that embodied what was stirring in david's worshipful heart we see longing for god remembering god exulting in god savoring god at the banquet table Pondering God, resting in God, chasing after God, boasting in God. So what is prayer? Well, it's many things. But I believe at its core, it's these things, the heart of prayer. Expressing the deep longings of your heart to God. That's the core of prayer. Expressing the deep longings of your heart to God. Prayer is remembering God's greatness to God. You are great. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. It doesn't say average is the Lord and averagely to be praised. 
Decent as God. Doesn't say that. True prayer is remembering God's greatness to God. It's savoring the satisfying pleasure of God's love. Savoring it. Love that word. Prayer at its core is verbalizing intense desire for God. Verbalizing it, putting words to it. At its core, prayer is expressing faith in God's future protection as David did and it's bragging on God to God. Bragging on God, boasting in God to God. Well, to bring this home this morning, let me ask this question. Is that what prayer is to you? I mean, what we just looked at in Psalm 63. Is that what prayer is to you? Are the words that come out of your mouth in prayer simply the overflow of a worshipful heart? Or has prayer in your life been reduced to repeating trite phrases that you heard someone else say somewhere along the line that sounded spiritual but really have little meaning to you? Is prayer the outlet, the release valve for spiritual pressure that's building in your heart that seeks to be expressed in words and emotions? And let me ask the deeper question. This is interesting. What do you believe to be the purpose of our imagination that we've been given? That's an interesting question, isn't it? What's the purpose of our imagination? Was imagination given to us to play out fantasies in our minds? Were we given imagination to play out scenarios that bring us pleasure? We all do that, don't we? Well, I believe the answer to that question is... Yes, absolutely. That's exactly why we were given imagination. The problem is our corrupted nature, our flesh, lies to us by telling us that fantasizing in our imagination about sexual encounters or hitting home runs or making it to the top of our company or driving around in an exotic sports car or preaching great sermons is what will satisfy our souls. And the truth is, it won't. It doesn't. It's temporary, short-lived. But stirring up our imaginations to recall our great moments with God and our great moments with God's people, like David did. Times when we were absolutely enraptured with His glory, caught up in delight, lost in His goodness, singing at the top of our lungs because we didn't care what anybody else thought of us. We were just consumed with God. That is delightful and satisfying to our souls. You know why? Because we were made for that. Do you know you were made to praise greatness? You were made to enjoy praising greatness. You were made for it. That's why we go to sports events. That's why we go to the Grand Canyon. That's why we go do things. That's like when we find something that we think is great, we go, come here, you got to check this out. This is so awesome. Because we were made to praise greatness and enjoy praising greatness together. And when we find and discover the greatest being in the universe and praise him, it is a delight to his soul and to our soul. See, God's glory and your delight are intertwined. You don't have to make a choice between being happy and glorifying God. They go together. We were made to enjoy praising greatness. And so this is what imagination was made for. 
I hope that before we're done with this series, we will become a worshiping, praying people who are awake to the glory of Jesus Christ and are expressing that in what we sing and what we pray. I love, again, what John Piper said about this. He said, unless we cultivate our God-given powers of emotion and imagination, they will shrivel up and die, and so will our worship. I read this week the story of um, Charles Darwin. We know who he was, right? Near the end of his life, he actually wrote an autobiography for his kids. And in that autobiography, he expressed one regret. He wrote this. Up to the age of 30 or so, poetry of many kinds gave me great pleasure. And formerly, pictures, looking at pictures, gave me considerable pleasure. And music, very great delight. But now, for many years, I cannot endure to read a line of poetry. I've almost lost any taste for pictures or even music. I retain some taste for fine scenery, but it doesn't cause me the exquisite delight that it formerly did. My mind seems to have become a kind of machine for grinding out general laws from large collections of facts. Let us not allow that to happen to us. Let's not allow our Christianity to simply be the grinding out of doctrinal laws from collections of biblical facts. Don't let your first love grow cold. One man wrote, don't let the childlike awe and wonder die. Don't let the scenery and poetry and music of your relationship with God shrivel up and mean nothing to you anymore. You have capacities for joy which you scarcely know, and God wants to call them forth. That's the kind of relationship with God that God intends for all of us. So let us draw near to God. Amen? Let's draw near to God. Let us express to him in words and songs and poetry. Like a lady came up to me after first service and handed me a poem she'd written about her feelings for God. Let us express ourselves and express the passion and praise that our sanctified imagination stirs up in our hearts. For in that act of delighting in him, he is glorified, and that is the ultimate purpose of our existence. Listen, if on August 7th I go out and buy a dozen long-stemmed pink roses and take them home to my lovely wife and offer them to her and say, Honey, happy birthday, and she takes them and says, Oh, look, you remembered. These are pink roses. I love roses. Thank you so much. And I say something like, Well, think nothing of it. It's my duty. Wouldn't that just absolutely suck all the moral value right out of that statement? Wouldn't that just kill it? But if I would say, you know, honey, it gives me great delight and pleasure to see that smile on your face when I give you a gift like that. That makes the moment because we delight to be delighted in. And we're not alone in that. God delights to be delighted in. I don't know if your picture of God is like that, but it needs to be. And when we delight in him, we make a statement of his immeasurable worth to us. We're saying, God, you're worth it. Chasing after, hunting down, feasting on, delighting in you. 
Let me ask a couple of questions here as I finish. Are you letting your season in the wilderness? Some of you are in the wilderness right now. Are you letting your season in the wilderness intensify your yearning for God? Or are you blaming God that he hasn't changed your circumstances and made them more pleasant for you? Which is it? Let me ask this. Are you commanding your imagination to recall and relive those moments in your life when your passion for God was hot? Or are you letting your imagination dictate to you what will bring you pleasure? Are your prayers coming from a deep place inside of you that delights in God's goodness to you in Jesus Christ? Do your prayers flow from a worshipful heart? Or are your prayers the forced, dutiful, recited phrases of somebody whose heart is nearly empty? In short, are you honoring God with your lips, but becoming aware that the truth is that your heart your heart is far from him? Those are good questions, huh? Well, we don't do this every week, but I felt compelled that in response this morning that I should invite you to come, actually physically come and kneel around this altar or stand at the platform and pray and that together as a church, we can pour out our hearts to God and then in a few moments, we'll sing a worship song together. But there's something about doing it together. You know, there's a climate in this room right now that isn't really duplicated in your quiet place of talking with God. It's because there's, we're together. And so I'm going to ask you these next few moments to join me. And some of you need to just come and express to God some deep things that are in your heart. That's what prayer is at its core. You just, just Whatever's in there, you just want to get out. Maybe it's praise. Maybe it's worship for how good he's been to you. Maybe it's, you know, I'm not where I need to be, God. I, I, I don't have the want to, but I want to want to. He'll honor that prayer. Maybe it's a situation in your life that's really weighing on you and, and you just need to pour it out to God. Just kind of that raw, unfiltered version of prayer. Maybe you need to come and confess and repent. God, you are not my superior joy. I've been trying to find my joy in other things and they're not really that satisfying. And so in my heart today, I'm coming back to you and I'm, I'm repenting. I'm turning back to you, God. I think as a church, we just need to come before God together and pour out our hearts to him. And so, come on, come join me. Let's talk to the Lord. We've given us plenty of time to just spend in his presence. Come join me in prayer.